Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. At Nike, it wasn't about what was, but it was always this constant kind of understanding and sensing for what could be and the the way it allowed or the conditions that enabled people to create was trust hey man how are you i'm good and yourself Oh man, yeah, I'm really, really good. I've, we were chatting just before and yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, it's going to be a real good podcast. It's a good opportunity to dive into your crazy journey and then equally kind of what motivates you today. And I guess like before we do that, the best way to dive into it is, you know, a little bit of who you are, what you do and why. <laughs> yeah, I always have to, I'll be open. Like I have always have a tough time when someone says, what do you do or who you are? Cause I don't, at times I'm not sure what, you know, who I am or what I'm doing. And I share that just because, you know, at the heart for me, I, I think I'm a deeply curious soul. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I love adventure. I love being uncomfortable. I know that's not true of many people, but I, that's my happy place. And I love figuring how, how things work. Like maybe that's because my mom was an engineer early on and I think I didn't get those skill sets literally, but I think like understanding how things work is is a passion of mine. And so over the years, over the last 30 plus years, I've just, I've lived in a variety of different diverse cultures, you know, big billion dollar behemoth public companies, small private companies, startups, nonprofits. And I think throughout all that, it's just been an amazing learning journey for me. And on a personal level, I live in Ojai, California, which is this idyllic little community just north of LA. We have like 7,000 beautiful souls living here. And um, I've been with my wife, my amazing, incredible wife for, uh, God, coming up on 28 years. And we have two beautiful young daughters who are 25 and 23. Amazing. Oh, and we also have a boatload of animals, horses, dogs, cats, chickens, so... It's a bit crazy. Yeah, like I was looking into your journey and yeah, it was, it's crazy. And where you live now is, oh man, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. But I think talking about the journey, let's maybe start out with Scott. Let's start at the very beginning. Because like, <laughs> to some people they won't recognize, like I know I didn't. I, I picked up on it on a TED talk that you did. So yeah, let's start with Scott. Yeah, I mean, like the, the big reveal is my real name is Scott. And, um, and I was in third grade, I think there was like four or five Scots in the class. And the teacher was like, we can't do this all school year. So pick a name, a nickname for the year. And most people won't understand this reference because it's dated, but there was this TV show called Gilligan's Island. And, um, 
I went home after school, watched it, and there was this surfer dude named Duke who washed ashore. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. I'm going with Duke. I actually tried to change my last name too, but my parents weren't keen on that. So, um, but I've had Duke since literally their well, third grade, which was like in the early 70s, mid 70s, something like that. Yeah, man. And what was it like growing up in like the 70s? Like, I guess we'll we'll go on to talk about it a little bit later, but in respect to the global brands you've worked with, how does that period of your kind of journey growing up as a teen in the 70s, did that impact you in any way? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was, I was born in 66 and it was a fascinating time. I mean, you had, I mean, man was going to the moon. You know, it was like I wanted to be an astronaut or, you know, an astronaut who wore a cowboy hat, as I always like to say. And um, I grew up on a farm outside of Chicago, which was amazing. And it was just me. I mean, I think there's a lot of great studies now being done on boredom and how beautiful boredom can be because it just forces you to be creative. And um, but I also had two. I might have shared this in the talk, but I love to share it whenever I go. I, I just won the lottery with parents. You know, I feel so fortunate. We pick our friends. We don't pick our parents. And somehow my sister and I got lucky enough to have two parents that just, I think, nurtured a sense of possibility and um, rigor and uh, honesty and how we live our lives. And, um, and also imperfect in many ways. Like that was the whole thing. Like it's okay to be imperfect. Just be honest in that endeavor. And so that had such a huge impact on me growing up. I think about it quite a bit, like growing up on a farm by myself was really magical. I don't think I really appreciated it at the time, but I just had to tap into my own little world for years. And, um, and I loved it. You know, I'm just hanging out in the barn all day in the hay and making imaginary friends. But I think that level of just being quiet and uh, allowing creativity to emerge was just such a beautiful thing. And, and talking of creativity, how did that kind of start? How did the journey, I guess, to working for some of the big global brands that you've went on to work with, such as like Nike, et cetera, how did that kind of journey begin? And also, you know, that, that passion for creativity, how did that kind of come out in its initial fruition? Yeah, so I went to university at this place called the University of Vermont, which is um, in Burlington, Vermont. And I think a couple of things. One is I was an economics major and political science major, but I just loved philosophy classes. Like I couldn't get enough of philosophy for whatever reason. And of course, like the college counselor would be like, what are you going to do with that as a career? And I'm like, I have no clue, but it just, I love it. I wanted this, this stuff fuels me. And I really struggled with economics. And so there I am taking, I'm studying, learning about business. And then yet down the street in the early days, I was watching Ben and Jerry's literally dismantle everything I was learning. I was like, these guys, like I fell in love with them. I was like, look at these guys. Like they're, one, they seem like they're having a lot of fun, but they're breaking every damn rule I'm learning about in the classroom. And I think that triggered for me at that moment or it like planted the seed, like, hey, you don't have to settle in business. Like you can find a culture that creates the conditions where there's vibrancy and creativity and fun and culture and community. And so that was a huge piece. And then there was this one moment, I was in a philosophy class and the teacher said, hey, write a paper. And it was um, a critical analysis between Socrates and Plato's Republic. 
And I remember I went back to my apartment and I was like, I have zero will to do this right now, like zero. So I actually, I popped up, I think I opened up a beer, sat down and I was like, you know what, I'm going to write a play in modern day times. And Plato and uh, Socrates are going to be at a pub here in Burlington, Vermont, having a conversation about their work. And I remember like, it felt so right doing it. I was like, yes, this is like, this is to me, like I'm, I'm expanding boundaries of what could is possible, like creatively. I handed it in and then I kind of freaked out because I was like, God, I just got an F, but I didn't follow the rules. And the teacher gave it back to me saying like, Hey, like, and just thank you. And that was just this reinforcement for me. Like, it's okay to break the rules that bind, like, especially if you feel really strongly about something. And so long story short, when it came time to look for work, I went to school. I played, I was a hockey player. I played a year of hockey in Sweden, came back from Sweden and, um, talked to a couple friends who were at Nike and I was like, wow, like these guys are a bunch of mavericks and rebels. And it just felt like Ben and Jerry's and it was sport. And I love sport. I'm like, let me see if I can grab something there. And that kind of led me into the world of the big swoosh. And I was there for almost 16 years. This was 1990. I joined Nike, which was a golden age of the sneaker world. It was just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about like, Tell me about that period. I mean, it was just interesting. Nike had just opened the campus, <clears throat> world campus. I mean, now it's, I think at the time, I could have these numbers wrong, but I think there was 3,500 employees. Now there's over 100,000. Actually, I'll, I'll share a quick story. In our onboarding process, which I think this is one of the things most companies miss, is they look at onboarding as an expense. It's an investment. It's an investment and can be one of your best investments. But at Nike, I had to go up to Beaverton, Oregon and be immersed in the Nike culture, product, brand, everything. It was part of onboarding. And it started off with this gentleman, Nelson Ferris, who was the historian. And he just resigned. He was there 50 years, which is incredible. And he got up there and I'm expecting him to like beat his chest and talk about how great Nike is. And for the first 20 minutes, he talks about all these glorious mistakes that Nike's made over the previous years. And I was like, what? Like, I just loved the sense of humility and honesty in that conversation. And then he, towards the end, he closed it with like all the momentum and the beauty. I mean, Nike was just coming off Just Do a campaign and it was like a great time to be there. But the, the moral of that story was that he gave us all a giant permission slip to play. Like the whole motto at Nike is create greatness. And whatever you do. And if you said, well, what if I mess up? It's like, just don't do it twice. Like, there's no fear about messing up at Nike. And like, I, I did some wild stuff that I look back, I'm like, I can't even believe I did that. But it was such a magical time. And that, that talk set the stage for me on onboarding because it was like, all right, I can go out and create and this is going to be amazing. And I don't have to live in a culture of fear, you know, and worry about repercussions if I mess up somehow. And I was, they gave me the ultimate gift, which was I was empowered. That's probably the thing that I look at at the moment, the parallels in respect to what we see with like the creator economy, for example. I'd love to get your take on like the parallels that we see today because a lot of people are questioning the old route of like university. Like I went to, I went to university, did a degree, then subsequently did a master's and I loved it. And I think there is like a, there's a need for both. 
But equally, I think whatever role you get into, like this is what I love listening to your story about Nike, that ability to empower people and make them reflect on what the future potentially may hold and articulate a narrative towards achieving that. That's what I'd like to see businesses do more often at this point in time because, you know, we can learn from the past, but there's no future in the past. I'll equate it to a great brief at Nike. A great brief at Nike was B, and I actually made this mistake early on when I was in product. I created a brief and I gave it to the designer and I was working with like one of the best designers and he read it and this was, you know, before digital, so it was paper. And he's reading it across the table and then he very just casually slides it back to me and he's like, do it yourself. And I was like, what? He's like, you, you just tell me what to do. Like you didn't allow for creative expression or freedom in this brief. Like a great brief should be, should feel like Christmas morning or your birthday where you're about to get a gift and you don't know what's in that box. You know, you kind of know what you want, but you don't know exactly what's there. And I think my learning lesson that was, it was about not, you know, I always say, don't create magic, create the conditions for magic to happen. And so what does that look like? And the great brief allows for that interpretation, that freedom of expression, but it also empowers the creator to create. You know, what happens a lot of times in creative work right now is it goes through this like milling machine, which is, there's, it could be a great brief, could be a great initial work. And then there's like a committee of 25 people that like review it. And then you get done at the end of the day and it's like a watered down drink. And it's like, had not, has, doesn't even resemble the original intention or honor the brief. And I feel cultures that allow the creators to create, like A24 is a mystifying, unique, intriguing brand to me, the film house. And their whole thing is to put the power of the filmmaking in the hands of filmmakers. So you don't have studio execs on set. You don't have like, it's just like, go create. And so when I see the A24 logo at the beginning of a film, I'm more often than not, I'm like, this is going to be pretty damn good. And it, you know, they showed at Oscars, obviously they have a pretty effective formula. There's two sides of it, I guess. Like looking at where brands develop at this point in time. If you look at things like TikTok, it's quite funny because there's a lot of so-called established brands making a real glaring mistake in what you just mentioned. That it's kind of over over critiqued and over massaged to the fact that it takes all of the soul out of the essence of what the creative product should be. And to me, then it it lend, it ends up landing as a as an offering that has no heart and it misses any form of emotive connection. And I think that, you know, when you really want to connect with people, you have to connect to their hearts. And that's the crux of a, of, of a great brand. Like when Nike's movement happened around Just Do It, they weren't in great shape. Like everybody's seen that movie, right? They weren't in a great shape at the time, but the, the fact that they were evolving and le- trying to learn from their mistakes, but equally trying to map out a future that is a lot more prosperous and creative and clear, I would say, from a vision perspective and work towards that vision. I think that's the essence of a great brand, the ability to evolve over time, but then equally have the ability to move people on a collective towards a common cause. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good call, Peter. I think what, if I think about Nike... First of all, nothing survives in stasis. So if you're a company, you create something and just like, we're done. You're not going to like law of nature. 
you always have to adapt and evolve like to to thrive and it's funny early in the nike career i remember telling my dad like this place is so messed up we're kicking ass and it's like and they're changing things constantly and my dad would be like what a gift and at the time i was like what are you talking about like he's like imagine if you went to the same place every day and it never never was always the same thing like just relish the fact that this place is teaching you like how to adapt and evolve and grow. And I think in many ways though, at Nike, it wasn't about what was, but it was always this constant kind of understanding and sensing for what could be. And the, the way it allowed or the conditions that enabled people to create was trust. I feel like in so many cultures right now, and in fact, I just, Leadership for me as a whole in general right now is really interesting. I think trust is this lost vehicle or art. And it's like, we don't trust people anymore. And I remember like at my, when I joined Nike, I joined as this, in this revered program called Eakin and it's Nike spelled backwards. And um, the whole concept is you're put in the market and there was like 35 of us around the world. And you were supposed to know the brands forward and backwards. And you were the eyes and ears and voice of the brand. And I was fortunate. I was in Los Angeles. So I was in a major market. My boss was my age. She was in Portland, Oregon. And then the brief was, enhance the connection between our brand and this community and focus on women's fitness and running. And I was like, well, what else? And like, she's like, that's it. Go figure it out. And so here I am, like this early 20-year-old. And I, I have to say, like, I was ready to run through a brick wall for Nike. I was making just total shit for money. Like, it, it didn't matter to me. I had something bigger than money. I had my wealth was that they trusted and empowered me so that I could grow. And then I also felt valued and was, felt I was providing value. It's just like a really simple thing that I'm like, how can people not understand that within companies? That's That's just the basic... Uh, human form. Am I valued? <laughs> and, am I pro- and am I providing value? Like, it's not that hard. As you say, like trust gives people freedom and freedom comes back in terms of value, both to the communities that you serve because the product's great and then equally to us as individuals, because, you know, it's like that lovely constant feedback loop. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's, I think once again, it's like, they don't teach you that in school. Like what's the role of trust in business? You know, I'm like, I would say it's everything. It's trust. Think about trust. If you didn't have trust in any relationship, that's not a relationship. You know, there's no connection there. Like there's a false, false connection. And I think trust is just this magical cord that allows us to thrive and do things in other ways that we, ways that we couldn't imagine. I'm interested as well, uh, beyond your time at Nike, diving into like seventh generation and the work that you did there, like how did that evolve over time? And talk talk maybe through some of the key moments and influences. So one thing I will say is I was, I did a range of things at Nike. I was in VP of product and of subsidiary. I was in brand. I even was in sales one year. And I really loved and cherished my time there. I met my wife there. So it was like, it, it afforded me a lot of wonderful things. But I was at this place in my life where I was really in this contemplative mode. And I was like, okay, I can see the next 15 years and they're going to be fun and I'm going to have a good time. 
but I need, I need to be really uncomfortable again. And um, one of the things you learn early on at Nike, especially in the seeking role, is the art of sensing and signals. Like you're supposed – it's this whole body of work where you're just like, don't tell me what is, but tell me like what's happening in a way that can suggest the emerging future. And I was really intrigued at that time about two things, the green movement, and um, I was really intrigued by corporate responsibility. You know, I lived through Nike and the labor crisis, which was a less than scintillating moment. And I just was really fascinated, like, okay, so my wife and I did this exercise on our own and just said, like, all right, imagine a day, what would it look like? What would we want a day to look like? I didn't say title company or whatever. And I just said, do this picture of like, I want to be in this place that's like, you know, pioneering corporate responsibility and these, uh, you know, leader in the green movement. And lo and behold, like this opportunity for seven gener seven generations showed up, which is for those people who don't know, it's an environmental household uh, product company, which actually was bought by Unilever uh, a few years ago. And it was based in Burlington, Vermont. So I was going back home to where I was in school. So I was like, all right, this is amazing. And I must say, Peter, for me, I got my real education there was I learned the role of soul of business there. And, um, you know, we were pioneering so many different things. I mean, we were, there was just the transparency piece alone was like, for me, like mind blowing. I remember we, we were cre created this product and somehow along the way in manufacturing a substrate was it created an ingredient or it caused an ingredient that was, uh, could have been harmful. And so our head of product was like, hey, we just got this back from third-party lab testing. And I remember like we met in a room and it was like literally a five-minute meeting. It was like, all right, communicate it. Like, what's the communication outreach to everybody? And how, how are we going to pull product back? And I was like, it wasn't even a discussion around anything other than do the, do the damn thing right. Like, transparency is a huge part of our DNA in this movement. And the irony of that moment was we communicated this issue to our community and our business grew. Once again, that's why I like part of the principles I believe in is um, honesty versus perfection. If, you, if, you're as, if you're a company or even an individ, individual and you express what's honest, I would say eight or nine out of 10 times, people are going to find that incredibly endearing and... Um, so seven generation for me was just, it was like, uh, it was just a few years of my life where I just learned, I got another MBA, you know, I got an MBA at Nike and I got another one at seven generation or, or maybe I went to like theology school at seven generation because it was more about that, but it was, it was fun and it was voted best company on the planet. We grew from 50 to $130 million in 18 months. And it was the other beautiful thing for me is to work from abundance to scarcity. And so scarcity meaning no resource. Like we were $50 million, like the brand team, what do you really have? But what, what I was fortunate, I had an amazing brand team. We were part of this zeitgeist, this movement around green. And that can, what I really learned also in that moment was that constraint Constraints are not bad, they're liberating. You know, when you have these things and if your first reaction is like, oh my God, I only, ha I only have it. And you look at it from a place of scarcity, scarcity, then you're, you're kind of hosed. But we're like, okay, this is a challenge, but how do we make this an opportunity? And that was also just really invaluable was like, all right, I, you can't bring a playbook, 
you know, like from Nike, you got to bring philosophy and principles. And that was like, that was just a fun part of that journey. Like I'm, I'm from the games industry. Like much of my background of the last number of years has been in computer games, right? So it makes me think of disruptive innovation and the fact that when industries first start out, like that kind of hotbed of innovation, the fact that you, you don't have the huge pot of money to lean into. So what you lean into then in is creativity and innovation. And the interesting part as well, I definitely wanted to touch on was when you talked about the transparency piece, because you see it day in, day out by brand at this point in time, no need to call them out. They all know what they're doing, but that lack of transparency, like the ability to not be perfect. I, I agree with, I think this is like people that are trying to do good. Don't get it right every time. So in that respect, that is why people galvanize and, and go towards those brands because they're trying to do something bigger than themselves rather than simply doing something for a, a profit per se. Like profit is a byproduct of what a true heartbeat of a company should be and, and that's a purpose. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's go back, look at Ben and Jerry's. I mean, I remember them like early on. I mean, they had their small little setup in Burlington, Vermont. They had just moved to Waitsfield, but... I think they were really clear from the very onset of what was why they existed beyond just ice cream, you know, and that has really been, I think, a common thread throughout the year. So when they take issues and they're not afraid to like upset the apple cart, which, you know, I actually love my old thing is if you don't stand for anything, well, then what do you, what do you do? Like that's a hard or at worst, then you just become like this, like hobby brand, like oh, it's oh, it's this day of the year, cool. Like let's hop on that day. And um, I think I love, you know, just down the street from me is Patagonia, and so I hang out with a lot of those guys and a lot of that team quite a bit. And I think this is what we get get wrong in teaching people about business and culture is that we tend to like really live in this world of comfort and safety. You know, and the irony is I think that is the risk. I think when you live in safety, that is riskier than having a point of view. And so it's just, to me, I really, I love and admire those brands and people and individuals that stand for something and then have the courage to lean into it. I mean, Ticker Hatfield, the head of the iconic designer at Nike, always used to have this great, great quote. And I would put it on my grease board wherever I went which is uh, if people don't love or hate your work, you're not doing work. And I felt in many ways that's like, just be bold and like lean into what you believe in and then see what happens. You know, like that's, there's a lot of beauty and bounty that comes from that. Yeah. Like Patagonia's book as well, like Let My People Go Surfing. I was reading that a little while ago and yeah, I love that journey. The fact that it started essentially out of a group of climbers that just wanted to create more quality stuff for themselves, essentially. And then it, it grew out into what is the amazing brand that we see today. And yeah, I guess like if anybody hasn't read that book or is looking for a really interesting book, that's definitely something to dive into. Before we walk on to your philosophy, I'd like to dive into like brands that are inspiring you at this point in time. Um, if you've got any in, in mind that come to mind uh, alongside Patagonia and, and I guess like why? 
Yeah, you know, I appreciate this conversation because I think a lot of times when we talk about brands, we live at like the 30,000 foot level in terms of these high altitude brands, you know, big, well-known global things. And that's interesting for sure. And I've been a part of that. So, but I'm really intrigued by there's another layer down of fascinating brands that no one talks about and we can learn from and that are dealing with like a lack of scarcity and they're turning that into abundant. Like there's all these interesting things. So like, for example, I really, really, really love, uh, we present it's part of, we transfer and it's basically was created for all things creative. And it's a, and it, for lack of a better word, it's a publishing or media house. And I think the work that the editor there, Holly Frazier, I think she's originally from London. What she's done is remarkable. Like, I mean, they won an Oscar for a short. <laughs> and I think she's, they, what they've created, and so much of that journey is the beauty of not knowing. You have this idea, like, you know, untold stories of creativity. Well, where is that going to take you? And they just, you know, once again, kind of use that as fuel and nutrition in their journey. And I love, love, love we present, I think, A24, not just how allowing filmmakers to make movies, but I think the way they launch, they're like, there are no rules. They're just breaking every damn rule known to man. I mean, I feel like their social is super whimsical and just interesting and unique. That's the other thing for me is I just love things that are unique. I also love this brand, my dear friend, uh, Tina Roth Eisenberg created called, uh, called creative mornings. And so the small idea of bringing designers together is now in like, oh, I, I'm going to butcher the stats, but like 200 cities and 65 countries around the world. I find resonance around these like smaller, lesser known Things. I love Tracksmith, by the way. It's a small running apparel company. I think they get the running consumer better than anybody. They created this. It's funny, like it, it goes against logic, but this just shows in terms of empathy and understanding, like the mindset of who you're serving. They did a, a film and it was an over, hour, I think an hour and 15 minutes long. And all they did was they filmed a woman running in the winter, parking her car, going for a run and then getting in her car set to music. And runners loved it because if you're a runner, you're like, oh, I know that feeling, that sensation, and that, you know, you're on the open road by yourself. And I just felt like that was so well done. And, um, and it was just creative. Like the production costs of that were like peanuts. But the creativity, you know, make it simple and make it significant, they did that so, so well. How about you? What other brands? What other brands for you out there that you find interesting? Brands for me are evolving. So I think like I'm, I, I like the group Knight Group, which are responsible for people like Mr. Beast, the the overarching um, company that oversees them and the talent agency for them. I think that what they're doing is is just amazing. Um, you know, like Ezra and phenomenal work, and I think that kind of heartbeat on creativity. I think that the knowledge of what they're trying to achieve, I am actually interested as well in the people like quote unquote influencers transitioning from like YouTube into brand. So like uh, Logan Paul and KSI in, in the work that they're doing around prime, like it's not my 
type of brand, but I, I do like the the approach that they're taking. So I'm intrigued by that. And also, I love storytelling. So I think brands that understand how to tell stories, that's important for me. And I guess like you can't really mention storytelling without mentioning like production houses like Unit 9. I think what they're doing um, in respect to really understanding brands and trying to articulate those those narratives yeah that, they're really powerful but yeah like for me i'm i'm all about the disruption I, I think that you know like we can we can follow a mold and you know we can, we can do things as everybody's done before but I, I get bored by that i want brands to like inspire me i want brands to do something that's not like it could be done before, but like maybe a new twist. And I think what what I think as well in respect to storytelling, I really want brands to move me. When I see something, I want to be moved. I want to have deep emotional resonance towards um, what they're articulating and telling me. And so, you know, back to what you said about the the runner, just like capturing those like footage of like going out on a run and then coming back in, like those things that people can really resonate with, but then understand the different layers of engagement. So like perfect music that goes with that perfect clip that's set in that such, such a way that makes you feel that you're part of that story. Cause mm. any brand that can make you feel that you're part of the story, they're the brands that have the lasting legacy. And um, that's the thing. Content now it's, being created by everybody in various different forms and you know what are you building you're not you're not simply building a brand to profit you you're building community you're building movements you're building like lasting change and to me it has to be interwoven to societal change like that's that's the heartbeat and i guess like you know this is talking about the philosophy the the human-centered part like what is it that your brand exists to do and what are you doing to achieve that goal? Because we have real two key major problems in respect to people and planet. So how are you as a brand connecting to people and what are you doing to make sure that future generations inherit a planet that is prosperous, that is full of opportunity, that is, you know, thriving rather than you know this perpetuation of crisis and status quo like we're, we're at a breaking point in my in my view so i think that brands have always been that i'd say that cultural heartbeat so how do you make sure that your brand is part of that movement that's that's the intriguing part for me it's like you know you can learn from a lot of people but ultimately what is it is you as a company, what you, what do you want to do? Because it's it, any anybody that looks, looks for the lens of just profit and make make you know look at quarterly objectives like that that gaze is too short. Like mm. you have to look five, seven, ten years down the line and literally become obsessed with the future. Because what the more you know about the future, the more you know about the challenges. The the more innovation and solutions can can come from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. And um, for years, it started in 97, but I fell in love with this thing called biomimicry. And it's how you look at nature, not as a, not to learn about nature, but learn from nature. Like nature is a mentor. It's not a resource anymore. It's a mentor. 
And over the years, I've collaborated with that group, and um, I was on the board of the In- Biomimicry Institute for the last, or sorry, for eight years or seven years. And one of the things I realized was we have this model. It's called the natural world that for 3.8 billion years has created the conditions conducive to life. And if our ability to bring in and design our life, and I say design, I'm talking products, organizational structure, everything informed by nature's principles, or which are called life's principles. I think what's encouraging for me is like, there's a roadmap there. Like literally there's a roadmap. In fact, they're working right now on this big project, the Biomimicry 3.8 with Microsoft on how to not just create, you know, for all of their cloud storage, these huge facilities that are acres and acres, how not to like make them, how not to make them look like nature, but how do they ecologically function like nature? Like that's the thing. And there's, models and learning once again in the natural world without to do that. So I think what's interesting though, is we have to quiet our, as Janine, the founder would say, we have to quiet our cleverness around that. Like we need to look at new thinking and new models, going back to your idea of disruptive, you know, us pretending like we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. You know, even the, I was reading that um, Partha Dasgupta's review, that 600-page review he gave to the British Council. Um, He's the professor at University of Cambridge. If you look at GDP, but you don't look at the extraction of the natural resources as a part of that financial model, you're not. What does he say? I think he says, like, it's like looking at an English football game where you only count how many goals you score, but you never count how many goals against. You know, like it's just, and I think like that part of it is to me is like, just how do you invite new thinking? I will say this, and you've got uh, young child of mine, obviously are, are young adults now. I'm really intrigued and fascinated and, um, and a little bit in awe of the younger generation. I think they operate and think in a way that's so foreign to how so many other previous generations have thought. And so um, I do think there's certainly some signals out there that suggest there is some something that could be, you know, optimistic and invite possibility, but it's, we got a lot to do. And a lot of it is just, I think, disrupting how we look at business, you know? I mean, it's, this is a lot, this is a probably 12 podcast, but if we went into the whole dynamic around just even Milton Freeman and maximizing shareholder return like that's if that's the only goal well then you know what the output's going to always be it's not going to be what you want if you're if you're concerned about natural resources <laughs> you know so it's a bigger thing but i do think there's a lot of brands and people out there that want to do the right thing um there's a lot of brands that present that facade and it's up for the consumer to decide Definitely. And I think it's um, talking about like the next generation. I think we've just got different motives. It's um, we're not motivated by profits. We're motivated by legacy. We're motivated by when our time comes, what, did, what, what is our impact? Yeah. And that's it. And when you, when you have that like driver that you want to drive impact rather than anything else, then what does that look like? How do you shape that? How do you articulate that? And how do you drive movements around that? Um, right. And I think that that's a perfect 
segue into your philosophy, right? Like the blend of human-centered philosophy in respect to business and brand. I've said this many times. I have a great yogi friend who said there's no masters. We're all just learners. And um, I think over the last 35 years, and being an introvert and high observer, I'm just on I'm just constantly trying to understand how things work, especially in the world of business and culture. And when I look at it, you know, it was during COVID, I think I had just reached a point where I was like, I don't, I can't really take it anymore. I've been in too many C-suites where I just, I just don't want to be a part of it anymore. And so I said, okay, I'm going to finally just share on a whim, like what I believe these principles, and I call bonfire soul, there's 12 principles. And um, the whole thing is unlearning business as usual. I actually think we're taught the wrong things. Um, and I'm obsessed really a lot with culture, going back to our early conversations on trust and empowerment. And so during COVID, I offered up uh, the first cohort of the class in partnership with the Do Lectures. And I thought like five people would show, you know, my mom, my wife, my two daughters, and maybe a friend. And did two cohorts during COVID and a thousand people from 35 countries showed up, which was kind of mind blowing. And I didn't spend a dime advertising, you know, marketing it. I just did it. I created it in the way that I, based on my philosophy. And um, I took a break and now I'm going to launch it again in uh, end of September last week or last Friday of September. But I just find like there's an opportunity for us once again, quiet our cleverness and really like look at what's happening and ask ourselves, like, is there another path? And to get there, and my focus is on, once again, don't create magic, create the conditions for magic to happen. What are those things? You know, I don't think financials are a predictor of success. It's doing these other things well. So what are those other things? And that doesn't mean you have to torch the earth to do that. You can do it actually in a really responsible and beautiful way. I'm an outsider, Peter. I really am. Like, I don't, I, I don't fit into many things. I go into cultures and it's fun. And then I, you know, I, I tend to leave. But let me take a step back. At Nike, you taught, hey, there's only two things you focus on, insight and emotion. Did, like, the rest of the ROI metrics, like, didn't really exist at the time. And so it was like, what's the insight that suggests that this is a good project? What's the emotion you want to create? That was it. And so for me on, when I looked at Bonfire, I was working with this amazing human ethnographer, Peter Spear, out of Hudson Valley, New York. And I was like, let's just dive deep in the state of business and culture and everything. And it was really astounding and somewhat tragic and sad to read like the state of culture today around the world in business culture. I mean, 80% of people are not engaged at work. 45% of people wouldn't uh, wish that wish their job on their worst enemy, you know, tw only 25, 24% people feel like their employers has their well-being in mind. Like there's stress is an all time high. It's a, obviously a pandemic in the workplace. You have the university of Exeter, uh, study on, uh, scary Sundays, then the, you know, blue Mondays. And it's like, that was foreign to me because I grew up in amazing places for the most part. And so that the insight for me was like the foe in this endeavor is the acceptance of the status quo. Like somebody needs to like, I don't know, raise their hand and be like, Hey, I think there's another way. And so that's why I created this, this course and this philosophy. And I have jokingly said, I'm, my goal is to take down Harvard business school. And 
it's half jokingly because like, yeah, it's not going to, I was not going to happen, but I, I actually do want to challenge the current model of thinking and teaching that happens in the world of business. And so that's it. And once again, it's just 12 unique principles that have guided me. And by the way, what's interesting, the principles that over the years are not informed by business, but they're informed by the natural world, horsemanship, Buckminster Fuller, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. All my inspiration comes from things outside of business books, poetry. That That's the thing about the lens, right? If you widen your lens to open up your mind to what other possibilities there are within this amazing world that we live in, then you're not limited. So a, a lot of people that I speak to and, you know, they read the same books, they, they swim in the same circles. And where's your inspiration coming from if you all have the same mindset? So that, as well as like what we'd mentioned earlier about like disruptive innovation, I think what what's failing in culture today is the lack of diversity of thought. The ability to understand that... Um, traditional workplaces, right? You finish university, you go into a low-end, low-pay low, low role. If you're lucky, you get a promotion. You work your way up that, 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 that ladder and you may get another promotion. And by the time you're kind of in your mid-20s, you're, you're pushing for being a director. What have you learned? What have you really had the opportunity to step back and reflect on impact like if you work for the same company what have you learned and that that desire for learning like the learner's mind i think is something that if you really want to change a culture you've got to change the learning you've got to give people the tools and the opportunity to reshape their thinking because existing thinking in my belief led us to where we are today and it's led us to a point of change. And what we want to do as leaders, we can pivot or we can stay. And that's that's the choice that we've all got to make. Do we want to pivot or do we want to stay? And every time history has shown us this moment, the ones that pivot take us forward and the ones that stay are left behind. And I think history always works in like 80-year cycles. And the only time that it hasn't, is this moment of crisis that we've seen, which has gone for about 25 years now. But what happens after crisis is kind of like that, you know, you, ha you have the fire and then the phoenix rises from the ashes. You have innovation that is coming through. You can see it in the creator economy. You can see it in the talent pipeline that is there. And akin to what happened with you with Nike, the brief has to be short and you just have to let them go. Mm. You know, it's like the one thing I want to just double back on is, and it's actually part of my course, like I have a principle, like uh, soil is life, like the most diverse, beautiful, abundant soil that can grow the most amazing things is the most diverse. It's filled with just all these crazy microbes. And I relate that to your culture at work. Like the more diversity of thought you have, the more likely something really interesting is going to emerge. And there's, I think in many ways that tension is a really healthy tension. There's bad tension and there's really good tension. That's a great tension. An example is when I was at Lululemon, it was interesting. You know, I joined in the fall of 2014 and the Wall Street Journal had listed as the number one brand that wouldn't exist, would not exist in 2015. 
in fact, a lot of my friends are like, what are you doing going there? But through a, a lot of different exercises internally, we then said, all right, we need to find a partner. And we were in Vancouver, Canada. And we just, we, we said, we need to focus on folks who at that moment were just doing, you know, the Jay-Z, real, recognized, real. That how do you show up in the most real, honest way? And um, we partnered with the team from Vice, which this is before it imploded. But back in the day, it was this gritty Brooklyn, diverse, eclectic mix of just characters. And so it was, it was funny when we went to select agencies, you know, there were creative partners that was all like the known ones. And then there was this like, this Vice group. And it was, you could tell like some people were like, oh, we're going to go, let's go with like, you know, people we're comfortable with. And to the credit of like, I created a small team. Um, we all agreed, like, we're going to go with Vice. Like these guys make us wildly uncomfortable, but they bring a diversity of thought to the conversation that we're not, we're not surfacing in our own dialogue. And that literally like was the beginning of one of this most amazing turnaround moments in the for Lou, like what they created and the energy they brought and what we did. And I just think diversity of thought. And I, uh, Gina Warren, who's one of my favorite people on earth, she led diversity at Nike and she was the head of people and culture at Lululemon. You know, her point of view, even on DEI is if you focus on diversity of thought as the driver, more often than not, that will create a diverse culture because diversity of thought comes from different experiences, different races, different genders, different ethnicities, and you're bringing together a mixture of different people, different individuals. So anyways, I'm just obsessed with that as a concept because I've lived it where, man, when you invite that in, it is so wonderful. Um, and yet we live a lot of times to just going back to what you said, like we, it can be a monoculture where things just stay the same the entire time. And then um, you wake up one day and you're like, wow, we're in crisis mode and we're not going to survive. Like what happened? And it's like, well, you didn't adapt, you didn't evolve and you didn't bring in this disruptive mindset. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's diversity of thoughts, one thing, but I think also... The ability to charge people, like emotionally charge them, give them the freedom to operate, um, remove the fear of failure. When brands have the opportunity to really invite creativity into the very essence of what they're doing, then you have the ability to really fail. And you take those learnings of failure and take them forward in, as lessons because like, there's a sub-quest to all this, and this is kind of something that I've heard you talk about, but there's the sub quest is the quest for curiosity. Like mm-hmm. if you really want to innovate and if you really want to change and you, if you really want to implement lasting and meaningful change it comes from a period of, uh, for an, an area of curiosity, you, you know, like, and why this is so important within brand today. Um, so like, I think that's a good opportunity to talk about the quest of curiosity and like take your views on it because I think, yeah, you have to have a vision for one as to what the future you want to articulate, but that vision has to be curious. It can't be singular focused. It can't, this isn't just a sole outlook. Draw inspiration from a multitude of, of backgrounds and pieces and, and put that puzzle together. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's two two points for me on that real quick. One is, once again, you got to start by quieting your cleverness. I've worked with CEOs who are like, one was a billion dollar behemoth and they've asked me to come in as a consultant and the CEO is like, I get paid to have all the answers. And I'm like, I'm not doing this project. Like this is, that's, I've, I've been here hot second. I can identify like one of the biggest issues is that you just feel like you have to have all the answers. And so you have to quiet your cleverness and be curious about, you know, what else, where else other solutions could come from. But the other thing is I, this is a, it's connected, but it's a, kind of a unique way of answering, I think, is when I was at Lululemon, I learned a new way of operating. It was decentralized structure. It's how the natural world operates. And most companies are command and control, right? But I was in this new world where uh, my team was just under 300 people. They, we were global. And it was decentralized, meaning the team in Asia had the autonomy and the accountability to run the brand and the way that they could. And my goal, what I learned was like, I had to learn a whole new way of leading. I had to create clarity, alignment, feedback loops. You know, my goal wasn't there to be with answers, but I needed to be curious enough to allow others to invite solutions and things that I, once again, could never think of. And hands down, Peter, I loved it. I wish every company was decentralized. It takes leadership moxie because you got to let go of your ego and you got to be like, all right, I'm just going to, you know, uh, operate in a different way. And also, but it takes curiosity because you have to let go of one way you've been trained to think and do and invite a whole new other way of, uh, of operating. 
And like we were launching Lululemon Asia at the time for the first time. And I just remember like, I'm in Vancouver. I don't know anything about the Asian market and Asian market is so huge. I mean, what happens in Beijing is different than Seoul, which is different from Tokyo. Like it's all, they're all so unique in these little micro uh, cultures. And they crushed it. They like, they were like amazing. And so, yes, there are those moments where like you, there's something happens where it's not great, but that's such a small fraction of the time. The vast majority of the time people deliver beyond expectations and that by inviting my own curiosity into the conversation, it, in, it invited others to be empowered and create in a way that I, once again, I, if I taught a business school, just thought I would be like, just be decentralized. Have the courage to create a decentralized structure and see what happens. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's crazy because from a learning perspective, we're taught a set way, but then only when you face challenge and controversy and a little bit of suffering as well, do you really have an opportunity to reflect? Like there's that Ray Dalo quote about pain plus reflection equals progress. And I, and I think that you do have to have that element of pain to reflect upon things that you've done in order to progress. But then once you've opened that kind of door, that's a door that doesn't get closed. Like what you then subsequently a lot more open to where that next avenue may take you. So that curiosity element and that learner's mind, I think that ultimately then shapes the journey that you go on subsequent to that, that period of pain. And it, it, there's a lot that you can be drawn towards the parallels of that post-traumatic, you know, people talk about post-traumatic stress, but there's equally post-traumatic growth. It's, it's looking at challenge. And a while ago, we, we chatted to Lisa Miller and she talked about depression and awakening, but two, two sides of the same door. And that's the thing. Mm. It's the same with like pain and progress. It's two sides of the same coin. But ultimately, once you've flipped it and once you've opened be it a dorm a metaphor, once you've opened the door per se, then you are a lot more curious. And, and I'd be interested to understand how curiosity shaped has shaped you personally and also professionally in your in both your personal and professional life because we are kind of mavericks in that respect that we you know we we don't fit within a grain but equally that's that's the that's a good thing because we we look at things in a different way yeah i mean i think being a an introvert quasi ambivert i just am like high observing mode all the time i'm just trying to understand i also love the concept of learning like I'm taking a poetry class right now. It's kicking my ass. Um, but I'm like, I'm really curious about the role of language in the world. And I think poets can speak. They can cut through the barbed wire of life like nobody's business. And so I'm like, I need to learn poetry. But it's a formal poetry class. So it's like the rigor around it is crazy. But as, a, as just someone who is, has this insatiable thirst for learning, I think that you then are like get into observation mode and you're like, like, Hey, what's happening? What are the signals? What am I sensing? And so when I make decisions in life, like when I went to Lululemon at a time when it was literally at its darkest days, I wasn't going there because I love black stretchy plants, pants. I was going because I, I felt like the mindfulness movement was something that was really interesting. That's why I was going. And I felt there was an opportunity for that brand to capture that is a, 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 an idea and a concept in a more, um, you know, a, a bolder manner. 
And so curiosity is, for me, I mean, that's why at the beginning of the questions, I always struggle, like, to say, like, what do you do? I'm like, I don't know. I do a lot of things. Like, I mean, I teach. I'm, you know, all these other things. But I've led the do lectures. You know, I could, I've never even ran an event. I couldn't even hold a dinner party. I didn't even know how to plan a dinner party. And yet somehow I felt like I could co-host and co-curate 150 people annually from around the world. Like, but I was like curious. I was like, no, I think this is really interesting. I want to figure this out. And I think what you also learn, just like nature, nature doesn't do anything by itself. It's relying on others for collaboration. And so my thing was like, all right, who else do I need to invite to collaborate to make this a success? And, um, but yeah, the curiosity piece for me is, is it, it's a little bit like trust. It's like, it just, I think in life, we go through life and there's just this door in front of us and we're like, that's my path. But the reality is I think there's all these other doors that are left and right that we never see. And that curiosity all of a sudden, when we allow that to invite that into our lives, like all these other doors start to open up, which I think is the beauty of the uh, most advent adventures. Yeah, I think that that's what we kind of need from brand, just that ability to just be wise to the fact that if you open your eyes, there are there's a world of possibility out there in respect to how you can evolve a brand and how I can change journey and shape a journey. And some brands, they they may start out on a, on a set footing, but then it doesn't mean they can change. They don't have the ability to not change down the line. And I think that's the that's always the power of change. That like change is the only constant. And if you look at where we as people and also professionally where, where businesses and brands are evolving, like you always have to, like it's, it's about riding the, the, the waves of the seas of change rather than kind of be swept over by them. One of the things I, I definitely wanted to chat to you about was about things like the sustainability brand because similar to when you were talking about co- corporate social responsibility early, early doors, like since the pandemic there has been a movement towards purpose and movements towards sustainability. And I guess like rather than it becoming a, a coining of a term, how did brand, how do you feel brands should utilize this moment to evolve for the future? Well, I mean, I think any great brand will always adapt and evolve because they're attuned to what's happening within the world and their culture. And, um, and the culture not being their culture, but the culture as a whole, the global culture or community culture. You know, I don't know of any, how you can look at the world right now and not ask yourselves, all right, what, how is our business or what are we doing in our business in a way that would minimize or even hopefully optimize a more regenerative play versus just, you know, what we're doing. And I think the other thing is, it's kind of like DEI and sustainability for me are like, I think the model's broken. I think when those things are embedded in your core, you can do it really well. When it's an adjunct box as part of an org, you know, there's a sustainability group and then there's like a DEI group. I think that looks pretty on paper. I'm not sure how effective that is versus... You know, when I was part of Seventh Generation, the idea of sustainability was at our core. So everything we did, we had that in mind. And But mind you, it wasn't like we were crushing everything. But at least our intention and our awareness was a part of that. And so it wasn't about 
you know, going, having a sustainability department. And I feel like the best brands will realize that pretty quickly. Like, here's an example. When you talk about turnarounds, um, Anderson Carpet was a, one of a, a huge carpet company um, based in Atlanta, Georgia. And then um, Ray Anderson read one of Paul Hawkins' books. I can't remember which one. Oh, Natural Capitalism. And he said it was the spirit of his chest. He literally transformed the entire company around being a sustainable organization in a way that they crushed it. He said, we have seven years, Mount Sustainability. Here are the metrics. Here's what we're going to do. But that worked because it was literally like the, the heartbeat of the brand. And I feel like the best brands going forward will acknowledge that it, it needs to be not just, you know, an adjunct piece or a separate piece of the business. It needs to be the business and um, we'll see where it goes. And once again, I just think it's, it's a, it's a fundamental philosophical shift on how to approach it inside a company and where it sits and how it sits. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's essentially, I've always termed it as being like the lifeblood of an organization. So if you look at, you know, an organization akin to the human body, like what is your heart? What, what is your blood system? You know, how, how is how is all of the work that you're doing interwoven to make sure that you're moving forward as a as a collective? Because, like you're you're right when when people sub it off into a we have a sustainability policy or we have this like small part of a division or what, like that they're they're missing an opportunity and you know like there is going to be an involvement of of roles like in how companies go go about executing and focus and but it has to be interwoven it's the heartbeat it's the soul it's it's the very essence of of what a brand becomes like you know when i started out with with purpose made like why did i start purpose made it's because i'm really concerned about the future and i have three kids under the age of 3 and I do not want them to inherit the world that we have at this present point in time because A, I see the challenges, but B, and this is a massive B, I see the breadth of opportunity. And one of the the points that I'm often asked upon is the element of like, well, yeah, you can see all these opportunities and disruptive brands are an amazing thing and or we can you know we can leave it to the the generation to follow but what do we do with these big behemoths that need to make their revenue forecasts in order to kind of please their shareholders or what what do, what can we do with these big brands that can't pivot and i think that what we do with those big brands is we <laughs> we change the we change the outlook of their leaders when big brands are questioning yeah but what can we do should they really be in charge of big brands I don't think so. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked we talked about like there's an element of stoicism in there, and you know we talked about ancient ancient Greece, and then but equally like one of the elements that really impacts me at the at this point in time is the Renaissance, and I look at the Renaissance moment, and I look at that as they were they were literally focused upon how do they make communities, society um, better, richer more optimistic, more hopeful, that what the future outlooks may be. And and this is kind of why I think that we are in this moment of a digital renaissance now. Like you look at the creator economy and they they don't care about existing plays. They're ripping up the rule book. 
and they are changing the landscape in front of brands at the moment. So big brands that we see today, yeah, like I'm not going to say that they're going to disappear in five years, but man, they have to evolve because they're missing an opportunity. And the opportunity is the fact that we can be so much more than we are presently. And we have to really motivate people to believe that they can achieve more than they're achieving at this point in time and, and understand that like it isn't about short-termism. It's not about that carpe diem. It's not about Caesar day. It's about Caesar year. And then, and then those 1% in, incremental increases year on year on year, day on day. So you're always, always improving, always evolving because when you create individuals like that, they create clusters of people like that. They create communities that are like that. And it grows and grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, the world's most pressing problems that we face, they're never going to get solved by an individual. They have to be solved by all of us. And like, it's about motivating people. It's about showing them a brighter, more optimistic future. And um, yeah, like I think that it, where we are now, like the biggest lesson is just belief real understanding that like we can achieve anything. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I just want to go back to like biomimicry. I think, um, I think we can look at it as every challenge you can look at as a threat or an opportunity. And I feel like there's an amazing opportunity. And so to me, the opportunity is one to galvanize in particular, the Gen Z who I just marvel at as a collective I think to prevent, create a vision of what could be. So like when you're just looking at the day to day, it's hard to snap yourself out of something. And I think the ability to invite a new vision for like what the world could look like or how we could operate would be, to me, I always think of vision is such a key piece. It allows people to see, feel, and trust what's, what's possible. And then it's a bigger question, but then I think, you know, there just needs to be a, an invitation to disrupt kind of like how you, we do financial modeling, you know, until we address some of those things, you're always going to have, you know, if we're going to measure success by GDP and GDP is absent of natural resources, then that's not, I don't know what we're measuring holistically. So it's just, to me, it's like a systems approach around all these things, but there are encouraging things. And I come from the Nike world, which was all about, you know, bring inspiration to people's lives. And I feel like that to me would be, you know, my Angela would say, you never solve anything by hate. I don't want to like jump on the hate dower we're, we're screwed mentality. I get it. I understand why people can get there. But I feel like we have to bring forth this inspired protagonist point of view. And that actually can start as consumers, you know, consumers decide. So I think a lot of consumers can decide how they want to commit their, their, their spend or how they spend or who they associate with um, going forward. And that does have an impact. So, Yeah, it's back to what you said about Friedman. Like at the end of the day, the focus at that point was about shareholder value. But like now, sorry, stakeholder, we, we are all vested stakeholders in organizations. So like we have a choice. That is the beauty of choice. We have the ability to support brands that we believe in and we have the ability to distance ourselves from those that we don't and you know only when like some of these rude awakenings occur then can we you know like 
brands can maybe wake up but it just you know it's it's not about like i agree it's not about the hate like uh, we live in a world of sado populism we do not need the polarization to continue we, it is about optimism rather than skepticism it's about trust and transparency and openness and you know like an embracement of the world and all its beauty to to kind of thrive and it's about connecting the dots and you know giving people belief that they they can achieve their dreams and i think that when when you can do that within an organization like that's when cultures really start to pivot because you give people freedom the the ones that face the perpetuation of challenge and crisis is is because they maybe don't learn the lessons of the past then they're not looking at those lessons as learnings they're, they're looking at those lessons maybe without the reflection that's needed like they're still seeing that as as pain rather than an opportunity to progress and i think that that's that's something that companies have to set right with themselves like if i'm going to like lead a big international company today and you know my my kid's grown up and he's he's asking me questions about what i'm doing with with said company surely that has given you the heartbeat that you know maybe that we could be doing more and that's that's what it's about it's about opening that gaze like i've seen some companies recently they they've brought in things like youth boards where they they're basically putting um people from the generations to follow and giving them an op- an opportunity and a platform to articulate to that business like you know why are you doing that or how are you doing that and what's the impact of that and you know these questions that like they may seem as like a bit of a curveball but like that diversity of thought that we were chatting about before that's really you know like that's what we need and because there's always been that traditional thing of close your door like close close your door to your competitor like don't don't let them see what you're working on or don't do this or you know competition 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 but it's it should be about collaboration like what is what is so wrong with like opening up your door to your your competitors to your community um you know at, at ea when we were going through a period of transition with some of the games that we delivered we, we weren't getting the best of feedback from from our community in respect to the the titles that we we're bringing out so we changed and we brought we brought our players in house and we we showed them at the very early stages of a of a creation of a game like this is what we're working on what's your feedback what's your thoughts like you're going to be one of the guys that play it or the girls that play it like give give us your insight and and that changed very much and evolved what we see in respect to influencer marketing today and if you have the ability to not only engage with community but make them part of a journey like that's that's where you're going to see some real innovation in my, in my opinion i'd love to get your take on that yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Janine Benya says it really well. Once again, the founder of Biomimicry, we did a podcast together a few years ago, and um, she said success is different for business than it is for the natural world and in terms of the mechanisms for, for how you operate. In business, it's a solo journey. To your point, you close doors and you just like battle it out and you figure it out. In nature, everything is a collaborative endeavor nothing in nature survives by itself. And that's why I just, I get animated around biomimicry and the natural world just because I'm like, there's so much learning that literally is right outside our door. And yet we just refuse for whatever reason to like 
inquire, like, you know, intrigued by, you know, well, how does this work? But the notion of collaboration, it's, uh, it's once again, it's a guiding principle and it's one of the distinct reasons why the natural world flourishes. It creates conditions conducive to life. And one of the principles is about fostering collaboration. Definitely. We've talked quite a, quite a bit about elements touching around the, the borderline of the future, but like in your respect, what, what does the future hold in respect to brand for the next, you know, two to three years and, and maybe further afield in respect to like, like it's, it's hard to predict down the line of 10, but what do you feel the future trends that are going to come to light? And also what, what's the impact in respect of the brands of the future and how do they evolve? Well, maybe I'll answer about what I'd like to see. <laughs> I would love to see if a gigantic shift in leadership, just in terms of philosophy and how to run a business. I think I could, once again, I could wax poetic around all these stats, but the status quo needs to be challenged um, for a lot of different reasons. Like small thing, like, you know, we pride ourselves on being busy all the time, but yet studies have shown that uh, science has shown that when we do nothing, we're, we're our most creative. So by like maxing out people's times, we're not allowed to be creative. So why not afford people the space and pace to do work that allows for that creativity to emerge? So I just would love to see a fundamental shift on what leadership looks like going forward. I think you'd be hard pressed to be a relevant brand in the future if you're if you're not addressing what's happening in the world today, especially around just environment and climate. I mean, I think I tell you, it's going to be like 54 Celsius in Death Valley on Saturday, which is like an hour and a half for me. It's crazy, which is 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And this goes back to don't make an adjunct ancillary piece of your business, make it the heartbeat of your business and you can do it the right way. And then I actually think, you know, it's funny. I don't know what it's like for you all, where you all live, but in our studies in university, we spend so much time focusing on macro like uh, macro politics, I think micro is going to take on a much bigger uh, role for brands. And um, what I mean by that is I think just being far more local, you know, like your ability to actually be locally relevant, not just globally relevant is going to be important. Every culture and community is different. And so you can still bring like, you know, the solid piece of who you are as a brand, but then I think you have to somehow customize that at the local level to make sure that it's localized and relevant for that for that marketplace but yeah those are a few of the things i'd love to see um and i just love smaller things i'm not interested in largesse i just i'm more interested in like smaller medium-sized brands that are inviting different ways of operating what's your opinion on like the future of storytelling and like emotive storytelling i guess in respect to brand I learned early on at Nike, and it's not for everybody, but it's funny that Apple adapted it and it obviously worked well, but um, great brands, there's rational and there's emotional. Rational is I'm going to create a great product. Even better, I'm going to create a great, unique product. Emotional is then I'm going to bring a, a feeling to that. I'm going to bring in, infuse it, and bring this emotional wrapper. In fact, Scott Bedbury, who was the CMO at Nike when I was there early on, would always say, you know, God forbid any company that thinks its product is wider, brighter, faster and stops there because where you see greatness, the customer sees parity. And parity is P-A-R-I-T-Y, not parity as like the, the, the concept. 
and I just think storytelling is it's one one it's the oldest human um, art form is storytelling it's the way we connect with people it's the way we get people to see feel and trust what we're doing especially when it's done from a really authentic uh, manner it's why I'm taking this poetry class I'm really 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 intrigued by the role of language you know David White the poet says the language of business today does not speak to the larger territory head I think he's right we talk in these like insane terms capture acquire target it's like a military operation and it's like how do you change the language in a way that's i think uh just more accommodating but also just more inviting uh, but storytelling is huge it's once again it's it's been a part of human existence it's um so it's it's a massive piece and i just don't think people truly understand it uh, that's the other piece it's more than just the formal structure of you know protagonist, antagonist, n narrative, story arc. There's a lot of other elements in there that, for me, like empathy and other things that are a key piece of that. It's about changing the way people think about the world, I think, and that comes across in anything that we do. This is why I love computer games, because like in games we, we have anything from 40 hours plus with a player, if we're playing a campaign, or even longer if they're just online. But let's put it to like a, a story, uh, a single player story mode. We have a opportunity to like weave a tapestry of um, intricacies in there that draws people to really be moved and feel, and that, not like that's the same opportunity I think is there for brand if they are willing to take it. It's that ability to really deeply connect with people, and um, yeah, like. When you are, when you can move people, that's what you remember. You remember those moments. You remember what you did at that point in time. This is why I think, you know, similar to like music um, being a cultural force, like just the understanding that like the stories that we tell, they can be so much more intricate if we really want to dive into it. And that, that's what I want to see more from, from brand. I want to see that like that level of, of depth and detail that it's not just simply about meaning and motive. Um, this is what the cause that we're going to press down upon. This is why, you know, akin to Simon Sinek, but like the how and the, the depth of detail is like what I'm intrigued to see evolve over the next coming like few years ahead. Uh, like I could continue and talk to you all day. Like it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, man. I guess like to close out, I've got like two two questions. One being like, what is some of the major influences or things that you, that's drawing your gaze at this point in time? And I guess like the second question is, like, what are the key thoughts and takeaways that you'd like to leave with our audience? So right now, like you know, once again, I I gravitate towards what I'm curious about. Um, I have this poetry mission, so I have no idea, no idea where this is going to take me, but I'm, I'm committed to it. And so I'll let you know in eight weeks how that goes. <laughs> um, I think other things that I'm really intrigued by right now, I'm really fascinated with the way Rick Rubin is operating and navigating through the world, the music producer. He's literally going against the grain of conventional logic that we're taught, and I absolutely love it. And so I'm curious how we can invite more of that into the world because I think his model and way of being is proving that it can be highly successful, uh, especially from a creator's point of view. Have you read The Creative Act? I've got it right here. Uh, I I've love got that it book. in hand. Yeah. yeah. 
so like Rick Rubin, obviously, I just, he's, uh, once again, I just, I'm a huge fan of breath, like the beauty of breath and the way he brings breath into conversation, I think is just, I just love it. It makes people so uncomfortable. They're like, wait, what? I'm, I got to breathe first. Like, and then the natural world, I just can't get enough of the natural world and learning about that. So I'm, I have this endless fascination around just learning as much as I can about the natural world in biomimicry. And I think that, I think the takeaways for me are it's okay for us to unlearn. You know, I think as we go along in life, we feel like we have to learn and then we, we can't let go of that. And then it's like, and then we're like, okay, we're done learning. But I think for me, the, what I feel grateful for is that I've just been around people that have reinforced and supported me in my desire to unlearn constantly along the way. And I feel like if we want to get to that place where for your kids and my kids and future generations, we need to unlearn what we're, what we've learned and invite that as, you know, quieter cleverness. I can't say that enough and just be uncomfortable. You know, there's a good podcast I was listening to recently called the comfort crisis. For some reason, we don't think, we think uncomfortable is bad. Uncomfortable, I had a great mentor who said, when you're uncomfortable, it's one of the few times you know you're growing. So make yourself uncomfortable. And um, I guess that would be the other takeaway is like uncomfortable is a really, it's a good thing. Um, and it should be embraced. Give it a big, give it a big hug. Lastly, how, how can people get in contact with you if they want to reach out or if they want to kind of see the work that you're doing? And obviously you said the launch of the work in September. Yeah, so I'm going to launch uh, Bonfire with Soul. There'll be more communication coming from that um, next month. The best way to just follow me or connect with me and I'll follow you is on LinkedIn. I, I keep my Instagram private just because it's more for me, like just a private thing. And um, But uh, LinkedIn for me is probably the easiest way. And then uh, bonfirewithsoul.com will be updated next month. But you can go there as well if you want to learn more about the course. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm really, really chuffed that we had the opportunity to speak. And yeah, man, I'll, um, I'll, I'll definitely be keeping tabs. And thank you so, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Peter, delighted to be a part of this combo with you, man. Thank you. I appreciate uh, what you do and, what you, and the work you're creating. So. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.